Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Freya Samuelson, and in today's episode, I speak with Fabio Teixeira, who is a Brazilian correspondent for the Thompson Reuters Foundation, covering climate change and labour issues. He's also a contributor to their new podcast, Just Transition, which focuses on places where there are shifts towards greener economies and how this is impacting the communities and workers in that industry. Fabio has a strong background in investigative journalism. And so I asked him to come on today and talk to us about his latest story and how he delves deep to get a story that sticks in people's minds. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping charities raise sustainable, unrestricted income from business sales. They're on a mission to help charities unlock some of the 2.3 trillion in revenue that SMEs make every year. They do this by making the contract side of sales fundraising easy. The platform saves fundraisers and charities valuable time, thousands of pounds in resource, and legal fees and streamlines supporter experience, and ultimately helps fundraisers raise more unrestricted income. So without further ado, here's my chat with Fabio. Hi Fabio, thank you so much for joining us on Charity Chat today. Uh, Let's just start off with a bit about you and just transition. Sure. Uh, my name is Fabio Teixeira. I'm a correspondent for Consortium Foundation here in Brazil. I write for Context, which is our uh, journalistic product at the Consortium Foundation. And I will also help with the Just Transition podcast, which is a podcast that we have launched this year at Context. And uh, I'm a, I have been a journalist for over a decade now and uh, i've been at the foundation since 2018 initially i was covering uh, human trafficking and slavery and now i'm specifically focused on covering the subject of just transition which we can get into a little bit yeah i think most people not most people but i didn't know what just transition meant so it'll be good to kind of explain what that term means and why the podcast has been called just transition Sure. Uh, Just transition is a term that has been gaining popularity in the last few years. It's basically uh, how we define uh, transition from a carbon-based economy to a more sustainable green one and how we make that transition without leaving workers and local communities behind. Like, for example, if you have a community that is reliant on uh, extracting coal to produce energy and um, have many jobs linked to that, how do you transition that community to a more sustainable way of uh, living and producing energy without destroying their jobs and their livelihoods in the process? That's the gist of what just transition means. And uh, we at the foundation, we have a team covering this subject specifically. Uh, We have correspondents in Brazil. I'm obviously the guy in Brazil. Uh, We have also people in Bangladesh and in India. And we also have other correspondents uh, covering the subject in other countries, but not as focused as we are in those three specific countries. And we have launched this year the Just Transition podcast, which is basically an effort for 
from our team to reach out as many people as possible uh, with our reporting and to show the work that we are doing covering how this just transition is happening all over the globe. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you are a journalist and you get you get the scoops. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what has been your most important story so far that you've covered and why are you proud of it? Yeah, uh, on the Just Transition beat, one, one of the first things that I started covering is the ethanol industry in Brazil. Uh, ethanol is a... Uh, interior sustainable fuel, alcohol basically, uh, made uh, in Brazil by crushing sugarcane and fermenting it to produce alcohol. And then you can mix that alcohol with gasoline to make uh, emissions in cars lower, or in the case of Brazil, where we have uh, hybrid cars, you can drive solidly on ethanol, which is in theory a good thing for the environment. But uh, as, I, as I just said, there are consequences for people uh, involved in the production of, of ethanol. And that's what I focused on in my reporting. I did uh, two investigations so far on how uh, the production of ethanol in Brazil is sometimes paid uh, by people that are put in slavery-like conditions. They are considered slaves by Brazilian law because of the terrible conditions that they are working on, that they are being kept on, and uh, how they live in that hopeless state while providing the world with a greener solution. Uh, and the reporting basically shows how the production of ethanol in Brazil connects to foreign markets in the European Union and to in the United States. Brilliant. Um, why are you particularly proud of this one? Well, this first of all it took a lot of time, and uh, it's not it's not that easy to do the kind of reporting that connects a commodity in Brazil to a, to international markets. I'm especially proud of it because I was able to shed light on uh, many different problems affecting those workers. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw uh, sugarcane workers on the field. Uh, basically, they don't stock. They just cut sugarcane like crazy for eight hours a day wow. uh, under the hot sun. And uh, obviously climate change means that uh, things are getting even hotter and they lose a lot of water and uh, mineral salts in the process, which can lead to severe cramps in their bodies and uh, damages to their kidneys and uh, to their health in general. And uh, I think we were the first to report specifically on those cramps, which they call the kangaroo syndrome which is a syndrome where they get cramps on their arms. And so their arms get pulled uh, towards their chest because of the cramps. And so they resemble a little bit the arms of the kangaroo. Mm. So that's why the name was uh, was nicknamed that, like that, the syndrome. Mm. And uh, we, were, we were able to shed some light on that aspect of it. 
beyond the fact that we also managed to implicate some big uh, companies uh, and uh, government uh, agencies into buy that were involved in buying ethanol uh, from plantations that kept workers in slavery-like conditions. Mm -hmm. And do you know if that story's gotten any interest from people who could maybe help or support or well, anything like that? Yeah, uh, I like the thing about journalism is that. Of this type of journalism is that it rarely leads to quick change. Among journalists, uh, we call them like usually when you start in journalism, you start uh, reporting on small issues like that, and you mm -hmm. you get kind of proud the first time you report on a pothole, and then on the, on the next week, uh, some guy has filled a pothole, some government uh, official has filled a pothole because he saw your story. So oh, I'm having an impact. But that's easy impact. Uh, in the case <laughs> when you are reporting on something like uh, slavery in the ethanol industry, it's not like the the company is just gonna see, oh no, let's let's fix this, let's raise wages, let's like uh, make mm -hmm. everything okay for the workers. That's not gonna happen. It takes a lot longer, mm -hmm. and the uh, impact is a lot less uh, visible. But yeah, we did get some interest from a local law, not the local uh, UK law firm that saw our reporting and uh, is studying the possibility of launching a uh, lawsuit against uh, mm -hmm. one of the uh, one of the uh, organizations that we mentioned in our story. Yeah. Amazing. And how did they come to find out about it? Was that something that um your organization are pushing out to people who can do that or has it been picked up yeah the, in other ways the, that's the, that's the thing about that's the good thing about doing journalism uh in a non-profit like the those writers foundation is that our stories can get reproduced can be reproduced without charge by anyone so mm -hmm. all, all of our stories go to the writer's wire which is like the which is like the terminals that you see uh, in those uh, fancy offices for business people. Uh, <laughs> so it goes there, and anyone, any outlet around the world, can also just pick it up and copy paste it into their site without paying us a dime. So oh wow, it, it has a wide reach because of that. Uh, so my guess is that they saw the story somewhere, maybe on our site, maybe somewhere else. Yeah. But uh, they saw they saw it and they decided, oh, that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, that's something that we should be looking into. Yeah. So as you said, getting these kind of stories takes a long time. How long, in fact, did it take you to get this particular story? The first one, uh, I don't know, six months, probably, okay. maybe more. Uh, I, I start the story started on. I, I always knew that there, were, there was problems in sugarcane companies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that has been going on in Brazil since forever. Uh, mm -hmm. But then I was 
calling a source of my labor specter and uh, to check up on another story. And he was in the middle of a, a rescue operation of slaves. Uh, and I, and he couldn't talk to me because of that. And, but obviously he, he told me something along the lines of, oh no, this operation's here. It's, uh, it's going to take me the whole week. Call me next week. And, oh, is this operation big? What, what company is it? And he told me. This was the very, this was a very start. Exactly. Of a little, yeah. 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 Like uh, when yeah. you pull the first thread on something. Uh, nice. And then uh, the labor inspector told me, oh, I, I can't tell you the name of the company. Uh, I made a deal with them that they, I wouldn't mention them to the press. And in exchange, they would give the workers that we are rescuing now a good compensation, which is a very legit thing for him to do because that's his job. He has to get the best compensation that he can for the workers. And he, if he has to not talk to us because of it, that's fine. But uh, obviously I wouldn't like just drop it. Uh, and be a bad journalist. Yeah, it would be a bad, it would be a bad, uh, bad journalism if I did it. If I didn't go after it. So what he doesn't know is that there is, well, is that when he does uh, a rescue like this, he has to submit a report, and that report goes to the economy ministry in the federal government, and uh, this system is wide open. You can look into it. Uh, if you know where to look. And uh, so I kept an eye on it. And when he submitted his report, I couldn't read the report because the report is uh, closed, like uh, only with a password you can see it, just for government officials. But you can see where it was, it was filed from. And uh, I could see that it was filed from a city called Delta, which is a city in Minas Gerais. And Delta is not unusual, it's a very unusual name for a city in Brazil. Usually our cities are named after uh, Catholic saints or uh, like rivers or something like that. And Delta is like a Greek number or letter mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was very unusual. So I took and put Delta on Google and I found out that Delta was a city, obviously, but also in the same city, there was a large sugarcane company that was also called Delta. So, uh, oh, the, the, if the guy was in Delta and the, was in this huge operation, the only huge employer in the region is Delta. So it's mm -hmm. likely that this is the company. And I quickly saw that Delta had the company, had links with... Uh, with the United States and, uh, and uh, exported ethanol to, to that country. So I decided that it was look, worth looking into it a little bit more. And uh, later I was able to confirm that indeed Delta was involved. They had been found to be having enslaved over 40 people, which is a lot. Uh, and uh, that was the thing that kick-started the investigation. But later we would find out that there were other companies that were that had also recently enslaved workers in the similar situations. And what is it that constitutes someone as a slave? Hmm. Uh, so Brazil actually has a very advanced uh, law on slavery, more than most countries. 
and that's it, and that's recognized as such by the UN. Uh, we define slavery as well. There's obviously forced labor. That's the basic one. There's also debt bondage when you like you owe a debt to someone and then you have to work it off. That's uh, that's also usually considered a uh, form of slavery uh, in most governments. Uh, but Brazil will be on, goes beyond that. They also considered consider in, in their law uh, any work that uh, is done in ways that reduce a person to less than a uh, than a human than, than, than basic standards. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try to explain it a bit better. Like if you are working on uh, sugarcane plantation and you are not an animal, you should have a few basic comforts that any person should have, like access to clean water is one that's mm -hmm. not difficult. You should have access to a bathroom, for example. Uh, you should have access to basic uh, protection equipment for you and for yourself so you don't injure yourself. So these things are basic things that in some cases are not provided by work, by, by employers. And when they are not in a systematic, constant way, they can be considered work in slavery-like conditions as well. And finally, there is a last uh, way to be considered a slave in Brazil is when you are working long hours that can pose a risk to your health. So let's say uh, if I work for some reason uh, 16 hours a single day uh, for the post-artificial foundation, well, that, that's abusive, obviously. Uh, six, no, no one should be working 16 hours a day, but I'm, I'm working sitting down in an office with air conditioning. It's unlikely to pose a real risk to my health, any work like that. What we are talking about here is when the work itself is done for an extended period of time to uh, injure or kill the worker. Like a few years back, there was a huge case in Brazil where a bunch of uh, truck drivers were considered slaves because they were being made to drive for over 16 hours a day. And obviously, if you are driving a truck for 16 hours a day, the chances are that you're going to crash because you're going to fall asleep. So that's work that can put you in mortal danger if done in, a, in an excessive way. So those are the four basic ways that you can be considered a slave legally in Brazil. It was a little bit long-winded. And then what is your next step now that you've identified there's an issue? I'm assuming you had to go there for yourself. Yeah, the it's not that e it's not that easy. Uh, when you are doing a story like this, you are very reliant upon charities, nonprofits, on academics, on unions to get that access to the workers, and it's not always in the place that you wish they were. In this specific case of the ethanol story, uh, I got help from a 
uh, an academic in the state of Alagoas. Uh, he was the guy that initially identified the kangaroo syndrome. And he said, oh, if you travel here, I'll take, you, I'll take you to talk to some workers that have suffered injuries or relatives of workers that have died uh, on the field. I said, okay, I went there. And uh, once there, I also got help from a local union because uh, I'm a journalist. I can just go into a sugarcane plantation and start speaking to, to people. It, first of all, it's trespassing. I can't do that. Uh, mm -hmm. I will be trespassing on private property. But I can do that if I'm with a union. Because a union in Brazil, according to labor laws, can get into any workplace. Wow. So that, that's how you get around that. Like there's okay. a there's a very there's a there are, there's a very small group of uh, people that that have uh, permission to get into any sort of uh, uh, workplace. Mm -hmm. Basically, unions and labor inspectors. So those are the people the people that I look that I look for. Uh, but academics and nonprofits are also very uh, important to me because they usually have a more constant. They're more constantly in touch with the workers, and they go to the workers' homes usually. Something mm -hmm. unions and labor inspectors don't usually do. So they have uh, they are able to reach workers while they are not working. And when they are not working, obviously they are more free to talk. They are not uh, being looked at by their supervisor or anything like that. So that's the that's the way that I do it. And, uh, in this case, it was an academic and a union, but uh, it can change. It can sometimes be a nonprofit, or it can sometimes be another organization altogether. Did you find that when you were speaking to people, they didn't want to, they were worried to tell you their story and worried to say anything bad in case it would have a recurrence on them? Yeah, that, that's very common. Uh, because I'm, I'm just playing, I interview people and then I go back to Rio and uh, they are still there and mm. they'll face the consequences. Almost always, in cases like this, and uh, in the ethanol story was one of them. We don't use their real names, and uh, we exclude any identifying information. And even sometimes, even with that, sometimes we decide not to use the information that we get because it can put them in danger. Even if, uh, even if we do everything that we can to anonymize them, it happened with a the wife of a dead worker. Uh, I wanted to use her story, but uh, I couldn't find a way to use it and keep her safe, so we decided not yeah. to use it. But uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and uh, so how how do you how do you get around? Um, so if they are nervous, what, is it just saying we will anonymize you? Will that does that help people warm up to the, to giving their story or uh, another way? No, there, there was a there was a few tricks. Like, uh, if I have recordings of my conversations, and the the funny thing of like in the, in the ethanol story, uh, almost all of the interview 
with one of the workers was just me sitting there, sitting there while the academic was talking to the worker. I think I made like I think I made like two or three questions altogether. The rest of it was all the academic. Because he obviously was feeling more comfortable with the academic than with me. That so I I just you have to have you have to be humble and know mm -hmm. that you are not the guy that has the most knowledge there, that you can't you can't be the star uh, reporter and just go there and think you're gonna crack yeah. everything when this guy has a relationship that goes back years with that worker. So you just have to defer to them and listen to them and report on what the worker tells back the academic that you listen to. So okay. it's uh, this that is the one, one way, but obviously you have to make the worker aware that he is speaking to a reporter. That's uh, basic mm -hmm. ethics. And then you have to make sure that uh, you can anonymize him or her in a way that won't bring danger to them. Another technique that we that I have used some sometimes is uh, if the worker is very very concerned about being exposed, you can say, "Okay, I can't show you the story. That's a big no-no in journalism." Mm -hmm. But uh, before I publish, I can call you and I can say what I'm putting in about you in the story mm -hmm. just to make sure that I'm not inadvertently exposing you. Okay. Like, just like, uh, okay, I'm quoting this thing that you said to me. Yeah. Does that expose you in any way? Does that put you in danger? And then he can say yes or no. Almost always it's no. Like, I don't, I don't think I ever get to rock one time when the guy pulled out way yeah. down the line like this. Just okay. uh, to, like to give them more, a little bit more of a mm -hmm. control over the story, I guess. You've already mentioned you've you worked with yeah nonprofits and unions and academics. What is it specifically for nonprofits? What value can they add with journalistic coverage? Well, they well uh, nonprofits can do what journalists can't. They can dedicate a lot more time to get to know uh, an issue. That journalists normally journalists normally can't, and uh, nonprofits can connect journalists with uh, people that are being aided by them in an extremely positive way. If like if you are a nonprofit and you want to uh, give more exposure to the plight that the people that you are helping uh are suffering talking to a journalist is almost always a plus you just have to make sure you will talk to the right one mm -hmm. so that's the thing that they can uh do but uh i don't know if you like the other side of things is that you can be a non-profit and you can also have a journalistic team like we are we are at the social foundation we are a non-profit and we have a journalistic team that covers a bunch of subjects around the world. 
and uh, that also can bring a lot of uh, good things to the table that normal newsrooms can't. Normal newsrooms are a lot more concerned with being commercially viable, mm. which is which is completely fine. That's what they are supposed mm -hmm. to do, make money, to keep paying journalists, to keep doing their jobs. Uh, but nonprofits, when they get into journalism, they can do the type of stories that are not commercially interesting or viable or they're not going to get that many clicks. Like I, I don't, I don't think my Etero story, for example, was a huge blockbuster in terms of clicks. Uh, I don't think it's an important story. story. It is an important story, but important story are not usually uh, big stories in, yeah, in clicks. Yeah, it's uh, usually what's big in clicks is like I don't know, yeah. lists. Yeah. lists are big thing <laughs> or uh, whatever BuzzFeed is mm. doing. I have no idea, uh, but. <laughs> The charities like, can play by different rules. Exactly. Yeah. That that's that's the big thing that we can we don't have to serve the same masters that the normal newsroom has to serve, mm -hmm. which is completely like obviously that's not a indictment or a criticism of normal newsrooms. Mm -hmm. That's how they have to operate. I used to be a journalist in the normal newsroom, and I know how how it is, and uh, that's fine. That's mm -hmm. part of the job. So in terms of yeah charities or nonprofits having their own journalistic teams I know a lot of yeah some charities will definitely have those but I think one of the things that's a struggle when it comes to writing a story or exposing something is that charities are supported by governments and the royal family or they might be patrons to the charity and it, I think a lot of charities are scared to publish certain things in case it affects their how much don how many donations they get is that something that you come across in your work or in brazil uh i can't say i can't say that i have but uh what i can say is that at the consortium foundation when i was hired uh, it was made very clear to me that there is uh like a building wall between the donors and myself in the way that uh, I'm not supposed to tell them uh, what my stories are. I'm not supposed to give them uh, information on what's going to come out or who's going to get implicated mm -hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. But uh, basically what they are, what they set up is a separation between editorial and the people that are financing editorial, which is not that different from normal newsrooms. If you have a if you have a regular newsroom, uh, you have also a wall between the commercial and the editorial. Like the guys that sell ads for a magazine don't get to talk to the journalists. Or, oh, lay off this guy. He has an ad coming up in our uh, next edition. Like, this is not supposed to happen. This is a very big no-no in journalism. Yeah. Uh, it does happen. Like, wow. I want like, like, I in the past, 
here in Brazil, I know cases where newsrooms have been intimidated by uh, advertisers. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine a world. I have. I don't, I know. I don't know any specifics, any specific case that I could mention. But uh, I can't imagine a world where uh, news uh, nonprofit that has a newsroom attached to it could be pressured by a donor to not publish a story, or mm-hmm. could be pressured by a donor to uh, do the story in a certain way if they are very dependent on it. But if that happens, that is completely and totally unethical in a number of ways. Mm. Like the donation for newsrooms to cover certain subjects is something that happens, but donors should never have control over what comes out. That's not what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. So if that's happening, that's very, very bad. <laughs> that's a big no-no in journalism. Yeah, like, like career-ending no-no. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. Has anyone asked you to get a certain story and then unco- not uncovered what they needed to get? How, how, do, how do you deal with that kind of situation? Yeah, that, that's, that's the normal situation. That's almost every story. Like, uh, you get a source and the source tips you on a, a story, on, on something that happened. And then when the story comes out, uh, the source realizes that you did the story in a way that doesn't benefit him at all. And, and sources are always going to try to use you. Like, you're going you're gonna to get leaks, you're going to get documents, and those documents uh, may not be the full story. But the, mm-hmm. but the source wants the document to be the full story. So when you go beyond it, you are starting to go against what your source wants. But that's basic journalism. And that I, like, I'm sure that this happens with nonprofits as well. Like a nonprofit will come, out, come up to me and say, Oh, Fabio, I have this new study. I have this new thing. Do you want to report on it? Oh, so, okay, fine. And then uh, while, I, while I'm working on it, uh, the study that they sent me ends up being like one paragraph in the story, barely mentioned, and the, the full thing uh, goes in a whole different direction. Yeah. Uh, of, like, this happens for a very basic reason. We are not, journalists are not meant to serve the source, they're meant to serve the readers. Mm. So I don't really care if I'm not making the source happy. Obviously, I can accommodate a few things. Like if a guy, like you, 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 you can lose accommodations, but you can't like uh, just write what the guy wants. He's not your editor; he's your source. That's a different thing. And uh, sometimes uh, they become angry with you and they never talk to you again. Uh, Sometimes they respect that. They respect what you did. When you deal with a journalist, you have to know that you are dealing with, in most cases, a free agent. It's not someone that you're going to be able to control. Okay. Like children. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I don't have children. I have a cat. Me neither. But it's basically the same thing, <laughs> I guess. That's what I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd say the learning from that is if you're using a journalist to have an open mind and not, I don't, I don't even know if you could have like set objectives for something like that because you can't control what you're going to find out. Um, yeah, I, th- I think if you are going to deal with a journalist, you have to, first of all, you should know what the outlet is. Like mm. you shouldn't just uh, call someone up without knowing what the what the person does. Like I, I do investigative journalism. Mm-hmm. If you go into my LinkedIn or my Twitter, you're going to see like my stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take months to do and they are very long and they're very complicated. <laughs> so maybe don't give me as like, like this happens all the time. Like don't, don't send me something and expect it to see it published next week. It's not mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm going to take my time, especially if it's a good, if it's good. So knowing what the journalist, who the journalist is and what he does is very important, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. And, and, and be aware that if you, depending on the people that you are contacting, if the guy, if you are part of a, if you are denouncing something criminal, to someone, someone that is going to actually investigate the thing, there's going to be consequences. And uh, he, as the journalist, obviously, would try to protect you as a source as best as he, as he can. But uh, there may be fallout for you. Like you have to be aware of that. There is not. There is no other way to say that. Uh, I'm not saying any specific cases, that, but if you are going to leak like secret documents, be aware of what you are doing. Especially mm-hmm. like basic stuff like that. You 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 need to be aware that you are you you are uh, putting this in the hands of a guy that is going to try to expose the most of what he can about the subject. And mm-hmm. he may not stop where you want him to stop. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, that's a be aware thing. If you are going to talk to a journalist and give him documents or whatever, and you don't want to get your name out, mm-hmm. ask for off the record. Like uh, that's that's basic, but I don't. Mm-hmm. Many people don't know that. And if you don't. You can't go back. Is that like, like you can't like yeah. uh, a few months later. You can't just oh no no that was off the record. If you say uh, that's that, off the record, yeah, is that really like legally you can't? No, uh, I don't know. Not, okay. not legally, it's an understanding. But uh, you you you, ha- you have to be a you have to be a very bad journalist to so, like yeah. uh, break okay. off the record. Yeah, willingly. Sometimes it may yeah. happen for other reasons, like someone. But uh, uh, if you like, if a journalist takes a quote from you or takes something from you and uh, attributes to you, even though you said it was off the record, that's like completely, completely unethical. Like also career ending, unethical. So what are you looking to cover in the next six months? 
Uh, well, uh, as you may know, uh, Jair Bolsonaro lost the Brazilian elections. Uh, the world rejoiced. And now we are going to have a new president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. And uh, he actually has a very robust uh, agenda on climate. Mm -hmm. And I think that will include uh, just transition. So I'm hoping to cover a lot of what uh, Lula's government will try to do on that uh, area. That's really exciting. Um, and if, yeah, if any of our listeners want to follow Just Transition and all the wonderful reporting that goes on on there, they can find it on Spotify. Well, you can find it on Spotify. You can also go to our site, Context, which, which houses all of, the, all of our uh, reporting on mm -hmm. climate, technology, and uh, inclusive economies. The site is context.news. And you can follow us on Twitter. I'm sure they'll, they'll post the link to the podcast there. They obviously have already, but they'll, they'll probably repost it somehow. And you guys will be able to track it down that way, I guess. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today and talking to us all about no investigative journalism. <laughs> it's so exciting. Way more exciting than my day to day. But um, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. A big thank you to Fabio for talking to me about his work. He really spoke quite truthfully about how you can never really go into getting a story with such a solid idea in your head of what you want. You've got to be really open-minded about what you may find or if you'll find anything at all. I learned from a colleague a few years ago that you should never brief someone to get a story with such specific requirements like age or they have to have been helped by this service or they have to have dealt with this issue. They also have to be sad but also not too sad there has to be positive end you know all these requirements just make it so quite impossible to find the perfect story and you just get so stuck trying to fit the bill um of you know what you've found works has worked for you in the past or what's worked best um so just a, a reminder to stay open-minded and remember that you could be missing out on other stories that are just as strong um, and that's it. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat was bought, has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping charities raise sustainable, unrestricted income from business sales, and they are on a mission to help charities unlock some of the 2.3 trillion in revenue that SMEs make every year. They do this by making the contract side of sales fundraising easy. The platform saves fundraisers and charities valuable time, thousands of pounds in resource and legal fees, and streamlines supporter experience, and ultimately helps fundraisers raise more unrestricted income. Thank you also for Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit. Magda Aksumit for our beautiful website, check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out now. Thank you so much, goodbye. <laughs>